Guys, do you want the bad news or do you want the good news? The bad news, the bad news is Andre, our other speaker, who's travelling from Cambridge, he's a student at Cambridge, the train to be cancelled um, completely and we've been on the line, we've been on looking up the Google and there's lots of disruption to the other trains, so we're hoping they can still make it, we don't know, um, we're going to have to play it by ear. Someone at the back is communicating and waiting for words, so we'll have to just say we pray to God that he comes, and if he doesn't come, say la vie, that's life. So um, I think without further ado, guys, let, let's just get um, started. So I'm Kevin Lane, I'm a member of the Education Forum, and uh, welcome to tonight's discussion on uh, white privilege. Uh, you're very welcome on this cold winter's night. And it's nice to be able to attend the meeting in person before they end up probably not being able to happen again because of this old new uh, variant of the old strain. So it's nice to just be in a room with human beings. Um, so the discussion is, does uh, white privilege do more harm than good? Question mark. And um, Alka and Julie, thank you for coming out this cold night as well and agreeing to speak. Uh, we really appreciate it. And... I suppose before we, we go to our speakers, um, really, you know, the thing I've been asking myself when we, we decided to have this meeting, is this a discussion about white privilege or is this automatically going to bring us into a culture war? And the, the question that I really want to throw out, or not so much a question, I hope, is I want us to be able to discuss the question of white privilege and does it do more harm than good and does it exist? And I want us to debate well. Uh, I want us to avoid that toxic sewer-like discussion that happens a lot of times when people talk about these things over Twitter and other places. We're not interested in that. We genuinely want to try and explore um, where this discussion's at and why it's really gripped um, a lot of education in America and in Britain, as well as other spheres of life. So that's the first thing. Um, the way it's going to work, if you haven't been to one of our reforms before, or you haven't been for ages because of the COVID, Alka will speak first, and Alka is a member of the Education Forum, and she's also a member of um, Don't Divide Us, which is a group set up to challenge some of the, the ideas uh, around critical race theory, which white privilege is part. Um, so she'll speak for five minutes, give her gives her thoughts. And I, I'm going to be brutal on the, on the speakers, it's only going to be five minutes, because we want to try and get out the audience as quickly as we can. So I almost apologise in advance for cutting you off, if you could be on five minutes. Um, and then on my right, I'm delighted to have Julie. And um, Julie's a parent of three school-age students uh, in North London. And Julie, you know, described herself as an anti-racist, but she's just been concerned about some of the literature that's coming back to her as a parent from the, from the, the kids, asking um, herself and her husband to list the white privilege, amongst other things. So she's literally going to just give a couple of her experiences. And God love her. She got her, her wee thingy. She went to print out her speech. Everything went open up. So she doesn't have her actual speech proper, nice paper. But uh, she's, a, she's a complete pro. So that ain't gonna, that ain't gonna stop her at all. Um, and then guys, we're gonna get out to the audience as quick as we can. And before I forget, happy Christmas. Make sure your glasses are filled up. If you're one of these sober, serious people who don't drink on a Monday night, weeknight, break the habit. It's almost Christmas. Get your glass filled up before we start. We don't mind you moving. This fella here, Tony's very greedy. Get yourself a gun, fill up the wine. 
You yeah. stick to happy holidays. Uh, happy holidays. <laughs> I love Christian. <laughs> uh, God bless you. Um, okay, as soon as uh, anybody else want to top up before we kick off? Going, going, Alga. Thank you. I'm sure people can help themselves. So they can. Okay, so I'm almost tempted to say, could I try and be Andre as well and try and give myself a challenge of doing, but I'm not now, I'll well, stick to what I can do. So white privilege, um, as I've only got five minutes, it's Peggy, uh, Peggy McIntosh's um, 1989 white privilege unpacking the invisible nut, nut gives a kind of brief, um, I've just picked out a brief description. So white privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions Maps, passports, codebooks, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. <clears throat> these are these are all kind of part of these um, unearned assets that people have by default of belonging to a particular group um, according to skin colour. Um, that was in 1989 in a particular context. That I mean, her main initial concern was to do with feminism and then to looking at uh, relationships between black and white people in America. Today it's expanded to, you know, it's now kind of a, a part of everyday daily discourse, particularly in academia and in cultural institutions. It, it's there, even if it's not mentioned by name, the kind of beliefs and assumptions that underpin it have gained influence now in, in virtually every institution in Britain, the civil service, teaching and social work professions, academia, local education authorities and schools. Now when I say this, I don't want to sound like a ranting conspiratorialist and say they're taking over. What I mean is that the, every one of these institutions at the highest levels are welcoming in new kind of um, diversity experts. They could be outside consultancies or if you're working in a school, it will be you know the member of SLT saying we need to look at race, which one of you is going to be take a lead on this and appoint a teacher that seems most um, up for it. And then time and resources and effort will be given over to working out some kind of initiative or policy that's to be adopted by the institution. And from what I'm hearing and from my own experience, if you question it, it's very, very difficult. Right? It's not like you can sit there in a staff meeting at school and say easily, well, actually, excuse me, but what's wrong with the, what's wrong with the colourblind approach? Or, sorry, I, I don't actually think all white people are privileged. And you kind of can't say that without really thinking you're going to be um, like you're some sort of hairy, you know, horrible monster. Really, there's a real disapproval. And even if you know not everybody agrees with it, you're not going to get the support. So, so it is kind of. I'm not saying this is causing it, but it's certainly fueling it. Uh, fueling a very kind of sensorious atmosphere, which is not what I wanted to say at all. I'm going to move on quickly. So, <clears throat> if you ask somebody, if you if you ask challenge somebody who advocates white privilege, say, well, what about the fact that most um, you know the highest disadvantages amongst white working class boys or Roma Roma boys or Roma pupils rather? Then they will say, oh no, of course not. We don't mean that white people can't be disadvantaged. We just mean that white skin that no white-skinned person will ever experience the disadvantage because of their black skins. So just be like whiteness is the norm. And that's, uh, I think that gets people on the defensive because it does seem 
oh my gosh, you know, whiteness is the norm. And you think you look around you, and actually, no surprise, most British people are white historically, the population is white, and we all have norms. So it seems to kind of make sense, and I think that puts people on the defensive, and I don't think we need to be for reasons that I, I hope will, will become clear. So if we, if we go along with this, this definition of um, white privilege, where does this leave Jewish people or Irish people or in contemporary Eastern Europe, Slav people who are considered to be not white and are disadvantaged because of their race? It doesn't, you know, it's an inadequate term to try and understand or describe patterns of discrimination and disadvantages in societies today. Moreover, I think the, just the term whiteness and its incessant focusing on skin colour is really horrible. It's like reintroducing biological racism in a new form, something that we thought had gone at least as far back as, you know, mid-20th century, if not earlier. And, you know, it's, and it's like the very people who, uh, supporters of this um, ideology, are very keen to say intentions don't matter, it's the impact that counts. And they, they use this to, to attack universalists or people who hold colourblind views. But the same thing could be said to them. You know, whatever your intentions, you banging on about whiteness and white privilege is going to just make people, you know, people especially young kids, hyper-aware of a biological feature. And we see this... In, some of the things I've seen happening in schools around this is really, I think, disgusting. I mean, you know, one school um, has lined up children to, you know, they've sort of <laughs> lines, asked them to, asked to line themselves up according to skin colour, darkness to whiteness, and then for them to think about what privileges they have. You know, and, and kids are just kind of like completely bamboozled and some are very upset by it. And if you saw the, the documentary, the Channel 4 documentary, the school that tried to end racism, you know, kids that were playing perfectly fine together in the, in the lovely unselfconsciousness that you, you would hope we'd want to preserve for children for a while, end up, after six weeks with Nicola Rollick, um, you know, end up kind of looking at each other kind of a bit suspiciously and, and kind of worrying, having these deep kind of existential crises about, you know, their family and the fact that they, their, their cultural things aren't as interesting as the cool black friends, you know, and it's just horrible. So it's, I think it is very divisive. So I want to quickly move on now to why is it being <clears throat> mobilised today more widely, and especially in schools? And I think there's several reasons for this. I can't go into all of them, but I think... Um, <clears throat> One is that it fulfills a need, but it's just not the need that its proponents think it is. I think if you look in, if talking about schooling in Britain since the 1970s, at least, you've had, you know, the educational elites and the political elites have given up on really valuing um, education and knowledge for its own sake or, or as a value in its own right. And that has really kind of opened the door to all forms of instrumentalism. You know, the start, you know, economic instrumentalism with, with Harold Wilson in the 1970s, or Callahan rather, sorry, in, in, with his Ruskin speech. That was, um, take, you know, then we had it in, taken, uh, taken up with the Conservatives, uh, who actually introduced multiculturalism, by the way. It wasn't Labour, it was Hesseltine. One minute after. <laughs> oh, no, okay. So there's this moral vacuum, and this is, this is filled into this. Um, 
So I mean, it's deeply divisive and it's ideological. And I think what it does do, it does create benefits for a minority of non-white people, a subset within a group of minorities. It creates opportunities um, to kind of, uh, you know, um, not, I don't want to use the word groom, but kind of cultivate a kind of professional um, elite, I think. It's a new professional elite. Um, and the worst thing is, is that I don't, it's meant to be a benefit for all disadvantaged people, but it can't really do that because it's faulty in two main ways, right? It's a methodology. You can't fight something if you don't really understand it. They haven't got a, de- a proper definition of what racism is. And they conflate discre- discrepancies, disparities of outcomes with racism itself. And that's not true. Disparities of outcomes can be, the, uh, the co- can be caused by several things. And sociologically, it's just a well-known fact. You have a multivariate analysis. You cannot have a univariate analysis of things that are really complex. So it's flawed intellectually and theoretically. It cannot... And if you then then base policies on a flawed concept, what you end up doing is... Um, having policies, say, in universities that are meant to uh, address, say, black disadvantage. But by using the term black as your main prism, what you actually end up doing is advantaging the more well-off black people anyway. And the less advantaged black people, along with their white counterparts, are disadvantaged. Thank you, thank you. Um, Julie, this is what I'm going to do. Thank you, Alka. Andre's walked in, God love him, he's had to fight all the problems of our transport system from Cambridge tonight and he's made it, so thank you Andre, you were due to be next, but I'm going to take Julie, buy you a wee bit of time, so you're not hot and flustered, chill out, get a sense of it, Alka doesn't like people talking about white privilege, she thinks it's flawed, she thinks it's a problem, she thinks it's divisive, <coughs> excuse me, that's where she's coming from. Do you have a sense of it? Make sure you get yourself a wee bit of notepaper and a pen with Andre. I should introduce Andre for 10 seconds. Uh, that raised an interest. Andre is one of my A-level students. Um, uh, I, I, taught, I taught him in Tottenham um, in London Academy of Accents, which is that school which is part of Tottenham Spurs football ground, if you've ever noticed it, Lily White House. And he's at Cambridge now studying history. Um, yeah, and he thinks white privilege does exist and it's a problem, and he'll tell you why in, in after. Our brilliant parent, Julie, gives us her experiences of how the concept of white privilege has percolated down to a typical parent. Julie. Thank you. Hi. So, my name is Julie Dupont. I'm uh, the mother of three children, uh, primary and secondary schools in uh, North London. And uh, I, I, uh, I was proposed by Kevin to come and talk to you because we've had, and, you know, with, first with Alka and then with Kevin, I've engaged a conversation about what I was seeing coming from the school. And as a, as a starting point, I'm parents, I want to educate my children with you know, good values, respect to, towards every, everyone, every color race. So, um, of course, anti-racist in that sense, um, and also I, I come from the point of view of I trust the school, what the school will um, give to my children. But then some of the things that have come back from the school, I have felt a little bit un- uneasy about it, and that's what prompted me to research and, and understand like, what what is it that's not right here. And the first, so I'll give you a few examples, and then I'll give you 
what my main question is at the end of this. But the examples I the first one was from the music school that my children go to learn the music on a Saturday. Um, and maybe that's our first privilege, I guess. You know, my children go to learn music on a Saturday. Um, that that music school, which actually is set up in a in the, the premises of a, a very diverse school locally, they, they run them the, the they run the premises on Saturday. Um, they decided to put to, to to put all the parents to make the parents uncomfortable, and that's how they presented. They say, "Let's make everyone everyone uncomfortable here." and um, think about how we can become an anti-racist music school. And they sent us a whole YouTube video that was presenting how music is racist. And with lots of examples that were really, really strange because they were actually presenting racism in the music world with examples that to me don't even exist. So they would say, if I were a racist, I would... Um, not tell you that Beethoven and Mozart was, were writing music at the time of the of, uh, of uh, uh, slavery. Okay, fair enough. We don't usually say it, but we can. It's it's fine. So if you don't say it, you're racist. If I were a racist, I would only ever um, um, formulate music in a written uh, written manner on, on sheet music. Okay, well, we all know that music can be transmitted or, you know, by ear, orally, by experience, and also written. So, so, so there were all sorts of very strange examples and a quite long video. So I wrote back to them, I said, well, well, sorry, what's the, what's the point here? Are you saying we're racist? Are you, are you trying to? And their response was, we are trying to make ourselves uncomfortable, we are trying to be an anti-racist music school. I won't go into this, the lot of conversations that took place after that. And then the second example I want to give is of the, the secondary school my son goes. It's a very diverse, local, comprehensive uh, school, and they've had three PSHE lessons, um, one on um, microaggression, I think, the second one on, on prejudice, the third one was on white privilege. They were all a little bit strange, but the, the last one on, on white privilege was very uh, very straightforward. They were given a letter by Lori Lackey at Hutchinson, she's a journalist in the US, and she wrote a public letter to anyone who's asking about what is white privilege, and she tells her story, her experience of racism growing up, and, and it's actually very emotional, and you, you feel her pain, and there, nobody should have to go through this, but she ends every statement with, if you haven't experienced this, you have white privilege. And and that's really what started making me think about the complexity of what we call white privilege, and maybe it means different things for different people, because you, I would never understand what it is to be uh, to be discriminated or, or, or my abilities to be questioned based on the basis of my skin color, but I could experience other types of rejections in life and build a certain resilience. So I know it's really bad to, or bad, it's not very well um, accepted to um, discuss around the context of an incident or maybe an interpretation of an incident if, if it's being interpreted as racist than it is. Uh, you can hear my very strong accents, you know, it's, 
you have had mockeries or whatever about my accent, my origin, and, and uh, that maybe is the little bit of, of connection I may have with what it is to be rejected for something you can do nothing about. Um, I'm losing my train of thought. So that, that, was, the, that was the white privilege uh, lesson. I asked my son what was the what was the the, the context, the debate, how was it discussed, and he said you know, no discussion because that's also something that he feels there isn't room for discussion. So they were told, and then they were also told that in this society, if you are white, you will probably be trusted a lot more than if you are black, and that's that. And the, the class is half and half. And the, the, so what brought me here is to think. What impact does a statement like this have on children of every race and color um, if you're being told that, that this society is set against you as, as the beginning? So reading the letter that they, from Laurie uh, Lucky Hutchinson, she, she ends the letter saying, the reason why I'm telling you this is because now I hope that everybody can put themselves into somebody else's shoes Everybody can stand up for bad, you know, against sorry, bad jokes or off statements, and and people really support each other. So that's the good outcome, and I hope that's what comes out of this conversation with the children. But I also think that it's very, very complex to really understand white privilege when you teach it to 11, 12, 13 year olds. You have to simplify it so much that maybe for them it's going to be a very simple statements that ends up being more divisive and setting them against each other, creating suspicion as to why is someone succeeding and someone failing. If, if, you, if you fail, do you think it's because it's the teacher, the school is racist, the, the employer is racist? If you succeed, do you think it's because, um, oh, I maybe have stolen the place of someone who, who would have deserved it, but the society is racist towards them. I, I don't know how twist how twisted it can get into basically children's minds, so that's my Perfect timing. So, Andre, you late comer you, you still have a sense of uh, what the debate's about. You have a good sense of um, you didn't miss too much. So, give us your take on it. Um, good evening, everyone. A nice and loud, Andre. I'm going to divide my speech into four key sections. First, where I think the discourse around white privilege currently lies and my issues with it. Then I'll address the topic of the white working class in relation to white privilege. Thirdly, my own personal experiences with white privilege in society and education. And lastly, what I think the next steps should be. But first, I'll start with a quote. White privilege is more about the absence of inconvenience, the absence of impediment, or the absence of challenge. And as such, when you have it, you don't notice it. But when it's absent, it affects everything you do. This quote by John Amici, a prominent black psychologist and consultant, perfectly encapsulates my perception of the way white privilege, or privilege in general, operates within our society. This by no means suggests that white people are incapable of experiencing any inconveniences or challenges, but it highlights the fact that an additional barrier created by race is not something that white people have to overcome in a majority white nation. One of my main concerns regarding the discourse on white privilege is the fixation on the concept of blame. Teaching children about white privilege should not be seen as an exercise where white children are being blamed to, 
blamed or made to feel guilty over actions they did not commit. But the reason why it must be taught in schools is to create an awareness of the negative experiences their non-white counterparts may encounter in our society, which was designed and still marginally benefits white, able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual, upper-middle-class men. Now, I perfectly understand that some among us, after hearing that series of classifications or buzzwords, may think, here we go again. Identity politics once again being used to alienate a certain group to boost another. Yet I believe this is far from the truth. Teaching white privilege to children is not, or should not, be a case of applying all blame to the aforementioned group and depriving minorities of their agency to control their own destiny. I believe Alco can somewhat agree with this. Yet I'd like to reiterate that I believe it's a function, its function should be in raising awareness to young people about the reality of current inequalities within our society. Examples include the fact that 37.4% of black people and 44.8% of Asian people are more likely to experience a hate crime on public transport because of their skin color, and hate crimes against people of color on railway networks increased by 37% in England between 2011 and 2015. Additionally, in the UK, black children were over four times more likely than white children to be arrested. Young black men were stopped and searched by police more than 20,000 times during the lockdown, and overall stop and search rates between 2018 and 2019 show that black people are now nearly 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched by police than white people. It's worth remembering that black people alone only make up 3.5% of the population, yet these statistics are disproportionately high. While some would like to see these as isolated incidents which shouldn't be used to condemn a whole race of people, the frequency in and of itself suggests the system at large does play a role in <coughs> behaviours, which disadvantages some and goes unnoticed by others. With this knowledge being imparted in schools, will children not be able to think about their environment more critically and think among themselves on how to amend racial inequality in the future, starting with very small actions? Whilst don't divide us, avoid targeting racial issues with precise terms such as white privilege, in the fear that it stokes unproductive tensions, I believe it's necessary to address these tensions, pinpoint which groups largely benefit from white privilege, or privilege in general, and work from there. After all, the gender pay gap is still 18.4%. After housing costs, the proportion of working-age disabled people living in poverty, 26%, is higher than the proportion of working-age non-disabled people, 20%. 35% of LGBTQ plus staff have hidden or disguised that they are LGBTQ plus at work because they're afraid of discrimination. These examples detract from the idea that white people are incapable of suffering within our society. However, these examples also do not specifically relate to race. So should it be the case that particular groups should not be able to speak up for equality by addressing the way society and the system regards one group, straight, white, upper-middle-class men, as the default? Should disabled people remain silent because calling for means of equality would disrupt the status quo? I strongly believe that social change stems from tensions within society. Without social tension, the achievements secured by black British activists such as Darkest Howe or Paul Stevenson would not have had the impact they did in reducing forms of racism in the UK. White privilege should be taught in schools for the same reason that religious education is taught in schools. Religious education, just like the topic of race, has never been more relevant, engaging, or challenging, as religion <laughs> and religious issues are in the news every day. For children to be unable to understand the changes in the world, they need to be able to interpret racial issues and evaluate their significance. One of the major complaints about the teaching of white privilege is that it's being taught as an uncontested fact, which Julie has mentioned. And this serves as a form of indoctrination, 
However, it should be the skill applied to the teaching instead of the content itself, which should be scrutinized. Teachers should be trained with the ability to provide this information to children in a non-biased way, which enables them to formulate their own ideas. To claim that this is a form of brainwashing is to deny children of their own agency and underestimate their intelligence. At a young age, I was taught about the teachings of different faiths and different religions, but this by no means led to me converting or losing faith. Instead, it enabled me to think more critically about the religion I was raised into, as well as the ways in which religions interact beyond the echo chamber of my school and my local community. I strongly believe that educating white children, particularly those who live in areas where people of color are a significant minority, is incredibly important, because these are the children who could grow up to be politicians or business leaders who play a role in affecting the lives of people who look different to themselves. This is how unity can be created. This is how we work towards a society where identity politics is no longer a major contributor to every discussion. I'll now turn my attention to the way in which the reality of working class students falling behind in attainment has been manipulated in an effort to disprove the existence of white privilege. After this year's parliamentary inquiry on how white working class peoples have been let down, the chair of the conservative-led education committee, Robert Hartman, commented, we desperately need to move away from dealing with racial disparity by using divisive concepts like white privilege that pits one group against another. Disadvantaged white children feel anything but privilege when it comes to education. Privilege is the very opposite to what disadvantaged children enjoy or benefit from in an education system, which is now leaving far too many behind. It is true that in 2019, just 17.7% of free school meal eligible white British pupils achieved grade five or above in English and maths, compared to 22.5% of, of all free school eligible pupils. The proportion of white British pupils who were free school meal eligible starting higher education by the age of 19 in 2018 to 19 was 16%, the lowest of any ethnic group other than traveler of Irish or gypsy Roman heritage. However, the plight of this group, due to the existence of wealth privilege, should not be used in an attempt to negate the existence of white privilege. As I've already mentioned, white privilege affects people of color in more ways than educational attainment, stop and search arrests, racial profile, mortality rates, hate crimes. It's slowly becoming apparent that the very real problem of white working class people being failed by the UK government after many decades is incorrectly being pinned on the discussion of white privilege. Why not look at the way in which a decade of austerity under the Conservative government led to cuts to schools, youth services, mental health provisions, and the education maintenance allowance? Young people were seen as expendable, yet now that the discourse on racial inequality is increasing, young, white working class people are being used as human shields against accusations of white privilege. This inquiry and the argument in general also fails to acknowledge the general inequalities that non-white working class peoples experience outside of the classroom. In regard to my own personal experience, I've grown up in areas of London where white people form the minority. Therefore, explicit instances of white privilege were not a day-to-day -day occurrence for me. However, when traveling to other parts of London, West London, for example, I've been racially profiled on several occasions. As recently as two months ago, in a Tesco of all places, I was followed by a security guard and later accused of stealing smoothie and orange juice after paying for both items, but choosing not to print a receipt. The same guard then continued to claim I, was, I acted like other gangsters, on what basis I'm not entirely sure. But what stood out in my mind was the fact I was aware that I was being followed around the shop and notified my white friends who accompanied me and bore witness to how he followed only me, 
not them, or the other white customers in the shop at the time. The mere fact that I have to consider how fast I walk, whether I should print a receipt to prove I'm capable of buying things instead of stealing them from a grocery shop, whereas my friends don't have to, is a recent example which reminds me that white privilege is real. I understand that this is one incident, and one bad apple does not mean that all the apples are rotten, but my story is one of the tamer examples. And I mentioned this has happened to me on several occasions. Plus, there are other instances of bad apples committing worse instances of racial injustice, which, whilst operating within the system. With so many bad apples appearing on a regular basis, surely this suggests there must be an issue with the roots of the tree. So where do we go from here? I believe more energy needs to be placed in the way that teachers are trained to handle discussions on white privilege. The recent integration in education seems somewhat rushed and therefore not entirely productive. However, if it is given the same amount of care and attention as religious studies, then who is to say that children will not be able to critically engage with these topics and better understand discussions of race, which are dominating our current discourse? Teaching white privilege is not and should not be about blaming white people. It should be about raising awareness to the specific challenges that white people do not face as a result of their race. And through, the specific, and through this awareness, only then can we collectively move to eradicate these barriers. It is also worth noting and acknowledging that white privilege exists. Now, white privilege exists doesn't leave those to fall, who fall under the BAME category as passive victims. The work of the Amos Bursary is particularly notable. This black-led organization supports young men and women of African and Caribbean heritage and enables them to fulfill their academic potential, attend the top universities, and establish good careers, which they can then use to give back to the community. Nonetheless, the fact that such a group exists and is so successful proves that the government is failing to integrate such a scheme for all within the system. If it is unity that we seek, should there not be a collective call for the government to properly ensure that all young people get the best provisions for future success? Therefore, I would like to conclude on the fact that white privilege needs to be taught in schools, so that in the future there can be a greater realisation of the meritocracy Britain claims itself to be. Thank you. Give the three of them a round of applause. I'm going to give you one question each, and then we'll bomb out the floor. Hardy, can I be so bold as to ask if there's any Moretti beer left? May I have a bottle up, please? Um, thank you, Ian. Um, so my quick question, and if you don't mind me being really cheeky, I'm asking you a question. I want you to answer it double quick time, so I can go out to the audience get their thoughts. So um, I'll get. How do you respond when you say it, this is divisive? Thanks, mate. It's the, and anybody else who wants a drink or some crisp, feel free to move about and get them. Um, you said it's divisive. Andy's come in and said, look, can't we teach awareness of white privilege? Can't we teach awareness of the advantages white people have over blacks? It doesn't have to be divisive. Andy looks like a really nice guy. If he's in the classroom, he's teaching it. Would you trust him to be able to talk about these things? Or do you think, no, I'm not giving an inch to you, Andy, you're simply wrong? That's the question to yourself. Um, to yourself, do you need a question? Um, Andre says something along the lines of, correct me if I've got it wrong, criticise perhaps the lack of skill of teaching, not the content, the subject itself. Would you be happy with that if you had a more skilled teacher talking and raising awareness about white privilege, etc.? Andre, the question to you, so that Tesco's thing about the security guard is quite, you know, you know, it's quite striking. It looks like a you know, good old example of racism. So, why aren't you calling that racism? Why are you calling all this white privilege? Okay. 
Who would like to go? Uh, anybody like to go in any particular order? Because we don't know very quickly. No, not yet. No, hold back. We, we take the speakers. No, no, not a problem. You can come back in a wee minute. We take the speakers for one question first. So your question was. Um, You'll have to remind me of it again, Kevin. So, can we teach white privilege in a way oh, okay. that's not divisive? Okay. And look at all, he's such a nice person. <coughs> do not trust him in the classroom, raising his issues? I, not only did Andre go to the same school as my son went to, he goes to the same university, so I would trust Andre, of course. Mm -hmm. But that is, um, if you've got the teaching qualifications. Um, no, I think the thing is, is uh, it can't be just thinking about it just logically for a minute. Andre is concerned with inequalities. And you, 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 at the beginning you said white privilege or privilege in general. So that's quite a big slip from white privilege to privilege in general. They're two very different things. And then in your speech you were talking about inequality and disadvantage. And it's not as if um, myself as an individual or as you know, part of DDU, Don't Divide Us, wants to not discuss that or think that's a sort of no-no for children that you can't discuss that in the classroom. Nor is it the case that we're kind of shying away, want, it, want us all to be one kind of happy, clapping, want to teach the world to sing kind of thing. There are divisions in society, and as somebody that comes from the left, I think they're to do with the way, um, you know, big structural relationships of production and cultural and all the institutions are organised according to, you know, kind of principles of capitalism. They're not fixed in time, their forms change. But the term white privilege is fundamentally divided right from the start, right? Its, it's, it's main category is a binary, is, is one half of a binary couplet, white and black. Yes. Now, if you start off with that and then cascade outwards into other kinds of um, inferred conclusions, I can't see where there is any basis for unity. Brilliant, really interesting. Judy? Same question. No, you're, the question to you is, because you were talking as a parent, Andre is the fact that we said, what about if we get a better teacher than the teacher that's mm, with your yeah, kid? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I, I like that you said, um, well, I, like that I was really interested in how you compare teaching religion with teaching uh, white privilege, because in that sense, it's when you teach religion, then in the classroom, you've got students who are going to be practicing, practicing this religion, they'll know more about it from the inside, and then the rest of the class who doesn't know this religion, but then it learns about what it is, you know, what it means and so on. I think if you start, if, if white privilege or, I would, in a way, it's, it, white privilege, when you say it's, it's, it's not having those hurdles to overcome or, or not having to face what you face in the, in the supermarket, um, of course, it's not the religion, it's not something you practice, but it's something that you have an experience from the inside, and the rest of the group doesn't have that experience, but can can maybe get a sense of what it is um, like. So, as a, as a parent, that, I think, would be a lovely way to present it and, and let children absorb what it feels like. But what, what concerns me is... The, the the what next once you've taught if you've shared that in the classroom that's wonderful because that's when maybe children experience okay there is something here but the, it's it's the um, maybe back to what Arka was saying is that when it's become a theory and a fact and it's called something so 
firmly, then it has to have consequences, and then it goes back into devising, okay, well, you don't have experience, and you have it, and Okay, okay, but I want to press this slightly before we go down there, because I just really want to try and nail this down, because there's a lot of hard hours sometimes on both sides of the debate. So what I'm trying to get at is that, do you accept, would you accept that there is a thing called white privilege, but you don't like it when teachers come and tell your kids to bring the homework back to you to list your white privilege? Is it the case that you think there's a space for introducing this to the class and discussing it? Um, if you have skillful teachers, like Andre said, or do you not accept the category, the concept? Alka doesn't accept the category, the concept per se. I'm trying to work out if you would be happy enough for schools to introduce this. You let to say struggle, you no, no. I struggle with the, with the white privilege because with calling it white privilege because it's too it's it's too uh, crude, all embracing. Yeah. Fine. Brilliant, Julie. No, brilliant. I, I know where you're, I can see where you're coming from. Andre, let's kneel this. Then we're going to go straight out the audience. Tony will take you first, and then anybody else that wants to speak. So, bang. Why, why do we call this white privilege and not racism? Um, I guess with that specific example, the reason why I chose to mention it in this discussion about white privilege is because most of the times I've experienced racial profiling in West London or in London or anywhere in the UK with white people around me, whether that I know them or I don't know them, it's always the case that there's a, there's a way of thinking. I have to walk or act in a certain way, whereas they do not have to walk or act in a certain way to get the same response from the security guards in the way that I did. Yes. Um, and this could be a form of racism, mm -hmm. but a more direct way for that I saw it is white privilege, because I posted this on an Instagram story, People responded that I posted going to a shop and having to remember to print out a receipt so that you're not accused of stealing. My white friends responded, I've never had to think of going to a shop and yeah. doing that that way. Mm. So, Andre, listen, I hear you. Now, but listen, this is the question that came because I want you to just have it follow on, right? What you're experiencing about the security guard or lots of other examples, you would have called racism, especially X amount of years ago. That was racism, full stop, bang. But you're now calling it white privilege, and lots of other your white friends are calling it white privilege. Now, if I didn't get profiled by the security guard when I'm walking around the shop, and someone says to me, oh, that's your white privilege, is that my friggin' white privilege? I have a right not to be friggin' followed around the friggin' shop by the security guard, right? The scumbag shouldn't be doing that. That's my right. We fight for rights. Thank God we've got those rights. So what I'm saying to you is, surely what you're describing is racism and not white privilege? I would say that they're not mutually exclusive. Explain, though. See, there's a confusion here. I really want us to have an honest discussion. So I'm not convinced yet by you on white privilege. So come back again before we go out to the audience. I think that white privilege feeds into the structures of racism within our society. The fact that people don't, white people don't have to think a certain way in the way they conduct themselves, or that people of colour are seen in a certain way within society. It's just the way that racism is integrated within its so basic interactions between people in the UK, in the US, other Western countries. And I guess the general way of just saying it is that it's one tool of racism within us. Okay, brilliant. I love you. I'm not convinced by that, but that's fine. We'll go out to the audience and Let's have an honest conversation. Honestly, I want to try and get the grips because you can hardly discuss this. 
because you're walking in eggshells. Who would like to speak? Tony, do you still want to come in? Well, yeah. I, I think it was interesting because I think you need to know a little bit more about the scenario that he was in. Um, we don't know whether it was a black security guard that was looking at him or whether it was a white guy and what the thinking was behind it. I think one of the um, most important things is that we are fortunate enough to, um, as a black person, have an experience that nobody else has. So if there's a, um, a group of white guys uh, um, 10 yards or 50 yards shouting and enjoying themselves, being folks, doing whatever they want to do, having a good time, and there's also a group of black guys doing exactly the same, the profiling and the thinking is very different. Now, it's different because of the subconscious racism that exists with us. We can look at a group of guys being quite rowdy. If they're black, we presume that they're doing something very different to what they might be doing if they're white. So I, I'm saying that the racism, um, white privilege exists because we don't have the choice. It just naturally comes to us. You know, okay, but I, I'm a white chair. I'm conscious of that. I'm not convinced by that either, Tony, as it happens. But I want to let other people get stuck in the discussion. Let it rip. Let's explore this. No, no, this is, this is, this is a real, this a rare opportunity to have a really honest discussion. So, uh, and I see you were shaking your head at the front, Dan. That's not, if anybody disagrees, can't come back in a spirit of honest friendship, but just be talking straight so we can try and get the grips with it. We've got yourself. Is anybody else after this who would like to come in? Yep, we'll, we'll take yourself, we'll go across, and we'll bounce across. Yep. So the modern approach, I agree with everything you said, but not the solution. You know, the modern approach seems to be to take a blunt instrument to try to deal something deal with something that my generation fought and stuck our necks out for. And um, this blunt instrument, what it does is it doesn't recognize the underlying deeper emotional, subconscious, unconscious feelings and causes. And it tries to impose a layer of rules. And it reminds me of California, because I moved from California to England. And in California, everybody had the rules of political correctness they spoke correctly, uh, non-racist. But when I came to England, people didn't. But people were less racist in this country. That was my experience. Um, the, the other funny thing is, um, so I grew up during the Vietnam War as the only Chinese kid with slanted eyes in a working-class American, white, blue-collar neighborhood. So I know a thing or two about racism, believe me. And um, it's really funny because nowadays in England... I get a lot of intolerance, and it's because of my accent, because I'm American. <laughs> and, and so it's re reversed. Being Chinese in the circles that I run in is a huge advantage, you know. And, um, you know, so I think the emphasis must be on the fact that humans are terrible, terrible judges of other characters. We jump to conclusions. And, you know, the black lives, with all due respect, I think it's a blunt instrument because what you're doing is you're, you're imposing a lot of rules of behavior but not addressing the underlying subconscious stuff that's creating um, intolerance. And basically what it is, it's, it's really bad judgment. Birds of a feather. People, people judge other people that are similar to them as better 
brilliant. That was a really good contribution. Doesn't have to be as long when people speak, but it was a good contribution. <laughs> don't worry. And you feel free to tell us your name, but you don't have to, just because if other people are coming back and it one says Patrick said or you know Bridget said or something. Thank you, and thanks, Andre. Um, but I do want to, you know, I've heard the phrase white people haven't had to deal with this or that today, and white people as such. Because, you know, this idea that you have to comport yourself in a certain way, within certain situations, because you're non-white. But I experienced the same thing as a woman throughout my entire life, as a not-heterosexual person throughout my entire life. So I don't think it's only whiteness, it is privilege in general, and I'm not trying to advocate for intersectionality here. But I just think, again, this... I mean, I'm a child of the 70s, and the way that we dealt with these things was ourselves. We didn't ask for a paternalistic, protective state to intervene on our behalf, at least not in minor situations, or I know that that's now a contested term and nothing is minor, everything's a microaggression, everything is really serious. But actually I'm very grateful for some of the discrimination that I suffered through because it inspired me and encouraged me to want to learn why do my haters, <laughs> my enemies, so to speak, hold these beliefs? And it made me study them and write books about you know, their ideologies, their belief systems. And to try to get to grips with that was a great gift. And had I been protected by Big Brother, I would not have had that struggle, which I think was a brilliant part of my life. Thank you very much, Chris, yourself, and Emory. Yeah, um, <laughs> for my scenes, I was asked to teach a year nine RS class. I'm a head teacher, and uh, as you can see, I probably embody white privilege in every, in every way. Um, and it was the year nine race uh, element I had to do. So I decided to uh, do a little bit radical, and I decided to follow the philosopher Tommy Shelby, who I would recommend, who's an American black philosopher at Harvard. And his definition of racism was actually really helpful because he talked about the concept of social significance. That is to say that, you know, part of what you're doing is you're attaching social significance to skin colour, to ethnicity, origin, or whatever. But then he moves on from that and he says actually that it causes alarm when people with resources and power do that. So in some ways your sort of 90-year-old granny who has particular views is in many ways irrelevant because she has no real power. So going back to your position, the security guard has power. And the moment that he or she attaches social significance to your skin colour is the point at which there's something really quite scary going on. And I found that definition really helpful because what it doesn't do is to say to a whole range of white students, you are the oppressor. But what it does do is to enable people to understand power relationships are absolutely essential in understanding who gets resources and who doesn't. Interesting. Andre, later on, I'd be interested in what you say back to that. I thought it was interesting. I've got to two more people panel, and then you can come back, pick up on what, on what you want. I, I've got uh, James on the left, and I think uh, Ella at the back's got her hand up. Ella is hosting us. Ella is looking after us tonight. And so we'll take Ella as well. Um, Elsa, okay. Elsa, sorry. Elsa's looking after us better tonight, so we'll take Elsa as well. We'll James, Ian, Elsa, and then I'll be back to you, panel.
Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose in a way you, you, you want to say it shouldn't just be a semantic question. It shouldn't matter what the word is. You know, you say racism, we say uh, privilege. It, it, it shouldn't matter that much um, uh, because it, it, we want to understand what's taking place. And, um, you know, it's not like necessarily like a boot word. I guess the, I mean, you know, without doubt, um, uh, if, if these are the words we're using, I'm definitely white and privileged. I mean, I think blessed. Um, I often think, you know, to be alive in 2021, as opposed to, say, 1400 in Britain, as opposed to being, uh, you know, in Uganda or in South Africa, I think I'm very lucky because there's, you know, we're better off. Roughly speaking, we're better off. I'm lucky uh, to be who I am uh, and not be confronted by discrimination on the basis of my skin colour. Very glad of that. And uh, this seems like a, a very good position to be in. Um, and um, that's what I want for everybody else. I mean, not out of generosity, because I just think society is more effective and productive if that were the case. So I definitely want to see an end to discrimination. And um, white privilege, you know, if you want to make me feel guilty about being privileged, I don't mind, really, because what do I care? Um, I think that the, the thing that's slightly disappointing about the discussion is um, it's very rarely empirically founded. So I think um, the people that are writing and talking about it rarely look at the fact that um, we've seen a continuous decline in um, subjective prejudice, which is well measured. Uh, we've seen a continuous decline in the ethnic pay gap. We've seen a continuous decline in discrimination uh, in employment. And all of these things, um, uh, which are not, you know, it's not like a light switch. You know, it's not like we were racist and now we're not. We see just movements in that particular direction. And they're all premised, I would suggest, largely on the fact that institutionally, you know, we talk about uh, institutional discrimination, um, our laws for the last, well, since about 1976, have created a framework which is anti-racist. So if you were to, I mean, I appreciate this is kind of uh, um, contrarian, but uh, institutionally, this is an anti-racist country. I mean, to say that the laws we have are designed, I think the exception is, is the immigration law uh, and citizenship, which is a very uh, real problem. But in, in employment and um, equal opportunities and all the rest of it, we have a, a whole array of, of, of uh, legal framework which is designed to diminish and uh, reduce uh, race discrimination. Brilliant. But just to be clear, does white privilege exist? Uh, uh, I know you said it's unhelpful, but um, does it exist? Or no, no. I, I, I said, I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid it in the sense that I'm saying, it, in a sense, it's semantic. But my actual view is that um, uh, the, the, the proper meaning of the word privilege is private law, and it, it's like barons. Barons have privileges over when a minority have okay. privileges over the majority. I don't think white people in Britain have privilege. They have the proper rights that um, the, the citizenship ought to enjoy. And it's an outrage that not all people enjoy Thank those you. rights. I apologise to the audience and the panel if I'm being crude. I, I could be, but I'm trying to find a way to drill right down, to cut the crap, 
trying to get to, to where this discussion's at. Um, I could be wrong on that and risk making the discussion phenomenally simplistic and crude, but I'm desperately trying to do that. Um, Ian, and then Elsa, and then panel, and then back out. Thanks. Um, first question is, I've got two questions. So the first one is, um, what does white mean? Um, one book I've read, um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, and it became apparent that the writer sees whiteness as an ideology, not just a skin colour. What does that mean exactly? How do I with that? Second, second, second thing is, um, I mean, the, the, the story of the, the supermarket, it, it does ring true because my partner, who's from a Sri Lankan background, um, has got a lot of stories like that. And it, it does ring true that this sort of thing happens. Um, in, in fact, um, she, whenever she does a, uh, some sort of transaction, she often uses my surname and, uh, on the grounds that we're not married, but on the grounds that it, it's, it's favourable to, to, to do that. Um, and, and it's cheaper than a ring, so what do I care? But the, the thing is, is that um, the other question I've got about that is that um, what makes anyone in this room think that secondary school teachers are going to deal with this problem? This, this idea that the, the more important this problem gets, the more I think this isn't for me. Can I just stick to my PowerPoints or my, you know... <laughs> A-level subject, because it, 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 I just think they could make it worse, and yeah. I wonder what the panel think about that. Why, it's, it's flattering you have so much faith in secondary school teachers, but why do you think they're going to do such a great job? Brilliant questions, really great questions. Elsa, great to hear from you. Hi, um, yeah, so this is my first discussion on white privilege, and I'm just kind of confused by the definition of it. So is it strictly to do with being white, like ethnicity-wise, or is it to do? Is it attached to this like um, person, say their wife in the class, mm. and they had a more advantaged upbringing, like say in school, and does it have all these like um, other like social aspects like attached to it? Like how would you define it? Great, great question. Can be, before I come up there, how many people want to speak next? If there's not many, I'll I'll let them speak for you. Quite a lot. So speak speak fairly brief. Who would like of our three great guests to pick up what they like? You're not going to pick up everything. Julie, would you like to go first? Um, of everything that was discussed. No, so absolutely far. not everything. No, so this just all pick, of, pick all one, maybe two. Of everything, but what I, the, what, what's a, It's all about the definition. I, <clears throat> I had the impression at some point that um, we were saying that. It's not like everybody's behaving respectfully, and some some people behave badly and, and uh, you know uh, perpetrate racism in the way they they deal with you in the, in the supermarket or or other and 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 the people who are racist and and act in, act this racism they are the outliers. It looks like um, the white privilege is making it like. The base scenario is people are racist, and the only ones who are benefiting or not living that are the white people through white privilege. And it's, I, I it's just what has come to my yeah. mind. So I don't know if that helps to to debate what yeah. is white privilege. But in in my 
maybe simplistic and idealistic uh, world, I tend to go on the on the on the, the first uh, the, the first side of the discussion, which is I assume people are good, and I assume most people are not racist, and and would really judge um, people on their behavior and character. But I agree that maybe sometimes I would. Uh, Judge somebody, or more than sometimes, judge somebody on their appearance, on their. I, I I hope I would never do that on the basis of color. But then, here's another one on privilege. Maybe the appearance, the fact that in order to apply for a job, you know, you have to maybe polish your accent a little bit. If you come from a working class background, you'll have to choose your socks properly because you know this this uh, these things make means that you're gonna have to fit in at some point, and that it doesn't have to be. Just the color, but even if you, if you, uh, do you see where I'm getting? Right, 100%, yeah, I'm 100%. 100%. And by the way, maybe just be, I think the very simple points are the best in this discussion. Okay. So I completely, the first point that you made about when people talk about white privilege and you feel a sense of, well, you know, I'm effectively white, so you know, they're saying I have white privilege. It's a great point. I'll uh, pick up what you want briefly, but I am, I'm trying to work my head around what I think about what James said. Is this just a question of semantics, or is it more play? Actually, I can't work it out in my mind, so help me. Okay, but can I, what can I say what I wanted to say, and I don't know if you address your question. I wanted to say, um, Jay, um, I wanted to pick up on James' point, because the, the description, which I very much agree with, that Britain having improved in terms of its institutional and social ethical norms over the you know, post-war period, but all, and all that, the point is that all that has been done on the basis of universal colorblind norms, right? Those have been the values that have influenced and inspired people to make the changes that have created a situation where Britain today is a country where the majority of people are fine with people marrying across races, whereas 60, 70 years ago, miscegenation. How do you say that word? Miscegenation was like, thank you, was like a, a major worry. It's a real kind of you know concern amongst certain people. Not, I think, amongst most working class people as it happens, but more amongst the political class. So I think it's really true that not only is it not empirically founded, but I would kind of go further than James and say that it actually obstructs in our ability to grasp what is happening in reality, to grasp the, the actual inequalities that exist today. You know, so, for example, in 2020, um, Louise Richardson, the Vice-Chancellor at Oxford, was alarmed by accusations, you know, accusations that were coming out saying Oxford is institutionally racist, you don't have enough black students there, they're not progressing fast enough. Um, and so a, a task force was set up. So people were being paid to look into this. Right? Policies are being drawn up in various departments on the basis of this. Yeah, in that same year, the intake of Oxford's intake of non-white students was 23%. Now, that's double the national average of the population. But it's also three points higher than the proportion of non-white students in, a tip, you know, in the typical student age range. So, I mean, that in, and, that in and of itself doesn't negate the possibility of there being racist acts by individuals. And I think we all have biases and prejudices and blind spots. But I don't think that makes for um, a, uh, an institution, let alone a nation, 
the, you know, I don't think that, that, that justifies calling an institution or a country racist or prejudiced or privileged, right? And the example of the, the, um, the security man in the, in, in the shop, you see, again, we need to be a bit more, we need to differentiate in our idea of power, right? Because, yes, you know, security man and a customer, he's got positional power there. But in the scale of societal goods, he's pretty low down on the food chain, isn't he, a security guard? So, you know, you know in another way, he doesn't have power. These things are kind of relational, which goes back to what I said in my first speech, that to really understand something, which you need to do if you're going to then put all of society's financial and, you know, um, resort, you know human resources into addressing it, you need to have a pretty robust picture of what the problem is. And you need to use, um, you need to consider, um, for example, in Pro, you don't just look at stark raw statistics. You gave a load of, you know, raw statistics that sound really alarming. Goodness, you know, you read it, how many people be hate crimes? But then you look at what, what, what constitutes a hate crime. You know, and you have to, if you're looking at underachievement or entry rates, you need to look at the population as a whole. You need to look at the number, the percentage of people who get got to the position of entry qualification. You need to then look also at subjective things. How many people actually wanted to do that course? How many people wanted to put in the effort to get first? Brilliant. So, I, Andre, I lack of rigour. I lack of rigour in a lot of these claims. Okay? So... You might want to deal with that, but more, more broadly, still hanging is just the idea that we have white privilege or not. So pick up whatever you want briefly, mate. I know it's hard, and then we'll strip back out for more people. Um, I think one thing that I want to focus on is Ian's point about the role of secondary school teachers in all of this. Um, as I mentioned in my speech, the areas I grew up in in London, Hackney, Enfield, they the specific areas were places where white people were the minority. Um, but I think one thing that I was lucky to have was a diverse diversity within the teaching staff. And within the, through them, I managed to almost expand my horizons in terms of the way that I consider race in this country, religion in this country, as well as other things. I feel as though I do understand that it is a difficult topic, especially now to you know, interact with children with, especially in diverse classrooms. But I do feel like teachers have the potential to shape young people to think critically in the future. I feel as though without my teachers having imparted whatever wisdom they had, because they did teach me what was in the curriculum, but they also taught me about their own personal experiences, which has shaped the person I am today as well. I feel as though that has a big role to play in terms of how they go forth and they interact with other people who aren't the same skin colour as them. Um, and I feel like this can also be addressed in more ways than just addressing white privilege as a subject in a classroom. It could also be the way that certain subjects are taught, for example, history, decolonizing the curriculum, enabling other people from non-white backgrounds to explore their own history in a country which constantly teaches them about the Tudors but not the black people living in England during the Tudor times. And I feel like that way, one, that's one way that white privilege can somewhat be reduced in the UK. It says the history teacher to Andre <laughs> about the uh, about the black Jews. I mean, this is just me thinking out loud. Please shoot me down because it could be wrong. When we talk about the black tutors, Andre, I'm staggered. I think the sum total of black people in the whole of England was three thousand. 
And that book, The Black Tours, has caught on like wildfire across all the history departments. Our school, Damien, back there is my fellow history and politics teacher, and we're all talking about it. There's insights on it at my law school. There's a whole debate to be had about it. Well, also, also the, the, the main black tutor, this John Blank guy, he's a trumpeter. Mm. He's not king, he's not queen, he's not anybody important in the society. When have you ever studied the life of an individual Tudor trumpeter? Before this idea, of, it's black privilege in this. I think in this black Judas. I think you know. I don't want to say. I don't want to. I don't want to take a cheap shot or sidetrack the discussion. <laughs> but I do think that's an interesting discussion for another day, maybe about the black Judas, because so many history teachers I speak to are almost upset. They want to talk about that book, and I'm thinking, not sure. Um, that said, my colleague at the back is probably going to come straight back in here and shoot me down. Please feel free, Damien. Who else wants to speak? Can we'll I go one, two, three, and then we'll come over to this side. Do you want me to come in on the black Tudors? Whatever, Damien, whatever you so want. So I teach the Tudors, and it's all white, and I teach the black Tudors as a kind of one lesson aside at the end of the course, because I think it does actually say quite, some quite interesting things about how we... Uh, how we treat racism and, and the, the, the kind of crux of the book is that the, the black Tudors weren't treated with the same level of discrimination that came about as a result of slavery, which I think is quite an interesting point. But I do, I, I think it's, and I think it's an interesting point that's worth teaching um, in, in, in multicultural London today as a kind of a bit of an aside to actually this is, this is this kind of shows a little bit about how racism has developed historically because it, it, it wasn't yeah, particularly it bad then and it got worse on interesting crime slavery. But it is an aside to the Tudors course because yes, the the people with power at that time were all the white Tudors who uh, were in power. And those are the people who dictate what happens and so actually that's why it's taught as an aside in the A level course. Um, I think it's quite. I do. I stand by the fact that I'll, I'll teach it this year and I'll teach it next year. I won't teach as anything but the side, but it is, I think, an interesting side. Brilliant, Damien. But before I let you go, you said to me the other day in the staff room, you think white privilege exists. Yeah. Do you want to just share with our audience? Because well, most of the audience think it doesn't exist. So very briefly, tell us why you think it exists. I thought um, this guy in front of me, whose name is James, James uh, made some, some really interesting points, and, and I think it's true that um, we have progressed really well in terms of legislation that has forbidden racism and, and there has been the change noticeably in my lifetime that, that racism is, is far less, overt racism is far less socially acceptable. Um, but I think with, for all the achievements that we've had and we've had this legislation in place for a long time and, and I don't think we have... Uh, situations that, that we used to have with no backs, no dogs, no Irish on, on, on rental signs and, and people not getting jobs, but I think there is a kind of, a much harder to shift, almost unconscious racism that still exists, that is why you have people following um, on Jay Round in, in Tesco's and, and, and so on and so forth and that's much harder to deal with and that's kind of what I say when I, I'm kind of labelling my privilege Yeah, but just, just to be clear, because are you saying, like, I said no to you in our yeah. disagreement in school the other day. I said that's racism. You call, Are we saying the same thing, but you just call it white privilege and I call it racism? I, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think the idea of ra- the way I see racism is, is something more overt than, than a kind of unconscious 
I see someone walking around Tesco's there for I don't know I don't know I'm speaking for for this security no, guards and, 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 in his head but I, I do think it we've got to a point and it's a much harder thing to shift that there is an un, unconscious uh, an unconscious bias within society that still exists and things are much much better than they were um, but I, I, I do think it, it still exists. I think the term itself is obviously problematic because I think it's, it's something that is turning people off and it is turning people who are not racist off the, the idea of, of engaging with it because it's a loaded term. Brilliant. But I, I, think it's, it's that, I think that's what, the way it's designed. It's designed to be a controversial and loaded term to provoke reaction. Demon, thank you. We're going to go um, yourself... Then we're going to go Garth at the back, then we're going to come up to the front. So this side, sorry, be patient guys, I see you all. Um, I promise we'll get you all in. So, okay, so I agree with lots of what's being said. I'm going to try and speak in bullet points. I'll address the issue about the supermarket very quickly, because I often wander down to my local Sainsbury's to meet the security guard called Felix, who had a very fond and, I would say, loving relationship, which we've established. He's a top supporter. We talk about Spurs, and I love spending 15 minutes. It's worth going down just about... He's... He looked, he's on the lookout for black kids. He's a security guard, he's from Nigeria, and he is suspicious of the black kids. Now, what you will make of that, I don't know, but I just wanted to, since you mentioned Tesco's, that's what he's looking for. Would you be a Waitrose person? Sorry? Yeah, are you Waitrose? <laughs> no, Sainsbury's. Oh, <laughs> right, okay, so anyway, let's go down to see. I, I agree with the point that was made here. I don't know if there's a government organisation, institution that discriminates against anybody. I don't think it exists. Um, it's a hugely complicated uh, topic. I think the, the phrase white privilege is, is a bad faith term. I think we've got racism in this country. I think it's real. I've been nicked three, four times for speeding or different things a long time ago. Each time I managed to get off, each time I thought it was me and my ability to talk myself out of it. Looking back now, it was probably more so because I was white. Right? I can accept that. Well, it still falls into the category of racism for me. Yeah. White privilege is a bad faith term. I think it's spoken about, that's my view. Um, I think we have to do, and I don't want to make a too much of a reductive point, it's about kindness. We can teach each other to be kind. And I know that sounds a little bit woolly and a little bit, but it can happen. I just think it's a. I think it's going to take us nowhere. I think you look at the world today. I did make some. That's well, brilliant, mate. I have to stop you. Go ahead. Sorry, mate. But, you know, love. It's all about love. Teach love. Brilliant, Connor. Um, well, just on some on some of the statistics and stuff that that Andre brought out, I you know, wouldn't contest necessarily. I mean, I would say right, there may be instances of racial disparities and so on. And, there are questions that need to be addressed. But Adolf Reed sort of does a thought experiment when he, when he thinks about things like, say, representation at, let's say, let's say corporate CEO levels in America or something like that. He said, well, what if you were able to take the proportions of the population and, you know, uh, apportion out CEOs or landlords or whatever uh, accordingly? So you had one in ten that were gay, 50-50 male-female, the, 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 the appropriate... Uh, racial breakdowns and so on. What inequality is being removed? The, in that thought experiment, the equality is being shifted around. The landlords, the CEOs, simply their faces have changed. Um, and if we take it to say something like the, the British example, we talk, let's say, talking about 
um, deaths in police custody, something like a thousand deaths in police custody since, since 1990. Not very many have actually resulted in prosecution of police. Um, you know, three percent of the population being black, about eight uh, percent of the deaths in police custody are black. So disproportionately, that means that ninety-two percent are not black. The problem that leaps out for me there is yes, there's a racial disparity, but there's a lot of people dying after police contact. And when you think about the solution to that issue, the the thing that you should be fighting for is for no one to die during police contact, and or to minimise that to whatever degree you can. And then that would have a that would have an anti-racist effect because it would stand to disproportionately benefit people who were disproportionately impacted by that, that violence. And that could be applied to almost anything. COVID death rates in the first wave being highest for I think Bangladeshi workers. But then you think about it as a workplace issue, as a class issue. So your universal demand should be like better PPE, better ventilation or whatever, which would disproportionately affect the groups who were disproportionately impacted by death. So it's a universal solution to a racial a racialized problem. Okay, like an old-fashioned idea, but maybe one that some people done away with too soon. Universal class-based approach. Andre, a lot a lot of things are coming towards you, um, but the other panelists, you know, you know, pick up what you want as well. I think I'm taking Dan, and then you come back. If you want to come back, anybody come back, and then we'll go to the centre of the audience. Just just to follow up on sorry, I'll show you Andy's point. Um, I think I think the white privilege is a racist term. And I think that because, in simple terms, it applies a negative value for a whole group of people without any kind of nuance. And it's yeah. it's part of a wider attack on the majority. Someone called it the, the, the tyranny of the minor, minorities. But, like, I, I'm a teacher, so I, 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 can, I can vouch that I have to kind of deliver this kind of material in the morning. And I'll turn up on a Monday morning and I'll get a PowerPoint that is about one of these, you know, intersectional issues and then I had to deliver it you know and I don't believe it so it turns me into a liar and it makes me feel feel like I'm in the Soviet Union where I'm putting over a corporate ideological material that has no place in school I mean the, the term of, of white privilege is is appalling it disgusts me and and it, and it shouldn't form the basis of anything it's like everything has to be seen through the lens of race it's ridiculous you know we, 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 we believe in universal values. That's Look, Andre, Andre, look at Dan. Bang, straight into it. He is. He's not beating about the bush, is he? Uh, it's basically attaches a negative value to basically him and white people. Turns him into the alarm. He's angry. Yeah. Seriously, Andre, come on. What's, is, how do we work our way through this? Or can we not work our way through it? Does he have to just face up the fact and accept the fact that there is white privilege? And he used to get a grip and think differently. Or how, how, is there a way around this potential um, different way of looking at things? Or you have to accept that you're just in different sides of the fence. How do we? Where do we go from here? I think it might be a matter of perspectives because something I've heard from the other side of the argument from white people is that there is a fatigue of seeing everything through the lens of race. But from my perspective, most things are seen through the lens of race. There's Many different things, such as the integration of culture and the way I conduct myself, and I feel like this applies to a lot of people from an ethnic backgrounds. And this then affects the way that white people in positions of power interact with people from minorities. And I feel like within that, there is 
you know, there's a difference in terms of the way that we see the world in, especially the UK, from each other. Um, and I think the idea of seeing white privilege as something that's racist and an attack on the majority, it makes it seem more negative than it actually is. Is it not just providing equality or opportunity no. for a group of people? Because it 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 gives a negative value to a whole group of people without any kind of nuance. But something that I said within my speech is the fact that it's not about providing blame, it's about providing awareness to the, to the inequalities that groups of people experience within our society. You hear this term with something like white tears, you, you hear white as a prefix, a lot of negative, so you can't have an honest reaction, it's coloured by your race, it's racist. Your, your, your philosophy is racist, I'm sorry. I taught in Taunton 25 years ago at White High Lane School, five years. Everyone from all over the world, and the, the last thing that any of the teachers there cared about was race. We tried to educate children. The only person that was racist was the guy that came in from Harrogate and said, we're going to get rid of the racist teachers. It was ridiculous, right? You know, it was the last thing. What, what's going on is it's taken away from the real value, which is inequality, which is class and economic, right? It's a complete annihilation of what has been what the left has stood for for years right okay this is um I, i'm going to take you next but uh, just two things forgive me we've got to speak really quick i actually forgot you garth right and i see that from a little quiet person who never spoke you're getting so animated so i'm going to take a fairly quick report i think you want to come in so i'll let you come garth yourself and then uh, we'll take either of yourselves if you want to speak and i promise we'll get straight back over to you okay i'll try to be really quick then the um White people don't have to behave this way. I think that's where this starts with a lot of people. You know, I have to behave the way that you, you guys don't, and you don't understand that, you don't see that. And that leads you to a kind of sense that, that this kind of racism that we're talking about here is invisible. You don't see it. You, you go to the shops, you go out to the shops, you don't realise that there's racism at work there. And I think that, that's, you know, it's got to be a valid point, hasn't it? Um, but it's that bit where we then enter a discussion about what is and what do we do about invisible racism. And the problem for me with white privilege is it's not just coming up from the ground with people saying, I've, I've got lived experience that you don't recognise. There's a whole theoretical framework to this, which uh, the, the last speaker was just talking about, which which is very different, it seems to me, that, that, that white privilege in the academy is a very, it's got a very different tone to it. And, and, and I'm not, you know, I wouldn't imagine for one minute that you're trying to put blame on anyone, Andre. But I think that theoretical framework is entirely based around apportioning blame based on uh, analysing people on the basis of their skin colour and assigning attributes because of skin colour, without any kind of differentiation. So I think it's that issue about invisible racism that is one... White privilege is one way of talking about that on the ground, but it gets aligned with this other stuff, which is um, very anti-liberal. Thank you, Garth. Garth, thank you. Go on. And I called you Ella. Apologies for my misnaming. <laughs> um, so, yeah, one thing... Um, just two points. So... I think I, I acknowledge like the word the word white privilege, they can be kind of jarring and there is like um, power in language. So I, I don't really agree with the wording, but I do acknowledge that there is this um, sort of um, like thing that exists from say like colonialism 
and from the media, where it's, there, is, there is like privileges of being whiter. So not necessarily like being white, but being lighter skinned. So if you like, if you take the perspective of Europe and like go to Asia, um, they very much like it's very racist. Um, the lighter you are, the richer you're perceived, the better jobs you'll get. Go to South America, it's the same thing. Africa, South Africa, you're more likely to get a good office job if you're lighter skinned. So because of like this colonial scarring and because of like, the media, um, a lot of media, especially in the past, white like was the beauty standard. And I think it's like kind of like seeped into our culture, into people's perceptions. So I think the wording white privilege, very jarring, and I can see why a lot of people like it, because it's putting the blame on a lot of they're just putting the blame on like one ethnicity, which isn't the case, but you know, it does this idea of being whiter gets you more like benefits like with work and with in terms of being more beautiful, it still exists. So it, I think it's changing, but yeah. That's Brilliant. Brilliant. Guys, we're, we're not that long to go, so I'm going to take you, if you want, either of you want a brief comment, I'm going to go to this side of the room, and then we're going to come back for the final comments. Look, guys, I apologise in advance if I'm getting something wrong. Sometimes the idea debate is when the chair can state in a direction you're actually going to tackle a particular issue, work it through, and maybe get to the end where you potentially resolve it or whatever. The problem I'm finding with the white privilege discussion right now, it's all over the place. You're trying to, it's like trying to grab a bag of water or a balloon full of water. So apologies, but I'm just going to let it rip and people come in from whatever angles and we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, I was going to want to decide what, but you want to take this side? Oh, all right, I'll take this side. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yourself. I'm going to just read what I wrote earlier because it's going to be quicker that way. Um, so racism has reduced uh, dramatically in the last 40 years. It, uh, it doesn't have the official sanction it once did. Um, individual prejudice persists, of course. And on top of this, um, we live in a society where black and white are categories shot through with class, gender, geographic, location, um, especially poverty. If it's the case... Uh, if it's the case that black and brown people are disproportionately working class and poor, then all four of these realities will collapse onto any understanding of Andre's example from the supermarket. If Andre's friends were white working class boys from Thamesmead, for example, they'd know about the Asian shopkeepers watching them like eagles. Um, the security guards may have prejudgments about Andre's colour because they find in their area working class poor kids who are black tend to be the ones who steal stuff just as they might be white in other areas. So uh, white privilege I think is a deflection, yes, and I think Andy's point over there is brilliant about um, it's, it's a bad faith term which ignores class. And I just wanted to add on something which we won't get, have time to deal with here tonight, which is that we need to talk about how white privilege is being taught at infants and primary level. It's a whole other ball game for another time, I guess. Yeah, guys, if you're going to pop afterwards, this, you've written a book on this, The Myth of Racist Kids. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend it. How many people want to speak so we can find out? Right, yourself. Just very quickly, yeah. <coughs> um, I, I think... Uh, you have to ask where the vocabulary is coming from, all, all these new concepts that no one heard about until five minutes ago, and now sort of infiltrating all areas of, of life. And they're, and they're coming from, you know, a small um, cabal of hard-left um, academics, third-rate, because, you know, this is a sort of second reincarnation. You, you, you said that 
better to look at things from a Marxist, uh, old school Marxist frame, but that's not true. The old school Marxist frame died because it was rubbish, and now there's this new um, version of it, and, 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 and it's crap, it's third rate, it's, it's, it's as superstitious and ridiculous as old Marxism was, and people should just reject these terms outright. It, the, the term is clearly accusatory, isn't it? I hadn't thought about that until we talked about it, but white privilege is, 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 is deliberately accusatory. Never mind. We should white, reject it. White privilege does no more harm than good. Marxism does more harm than good. <laughs> 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 Rubbish. All right. Um, actually, a lot of, has been said um, that I totally agree with, particularly Adrian. And I, to bring back very much into the sort of educational sphere, I do think there is, is an issue about... Um, the, the capacity of teachers and why we should be asking teachers to be dealing with such difficult stuff, really. <laughs> I cannot understand how the term white privilege can be anything but divisive and blaming. But just I'm sitting here <laughs> and the age thing, I think, particularly primary school children, you know, I've going to schools and for the last 40 years I've been going into schools and, and seeing kids just getting on with each other. And I think particularly in primary school, um, to start raising a racial awareness, it actually starts putting up barriers for kids yeah. rather than bringing them down. But I just wanted to say, it made me think about the stuff that actually, because being a bit of a dinosaur, you know, what is, what is the difference now I can't see anything has moved on in terms of education and the way we think about race, about the way we think about class, actually. Then when I was teaching in the 1980s, and I was using Randy Newman's Short People, for anyone who's old enough to know the, the song, you know, to, to raise, and, and the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes video a donkey years ago. Um, and, um, and then in terms of class, seven up and eventually 14 up, you know, the red seven up was, was and, and I thought, well, was there something wrong with that? Was, how is that different to what is going on now, really? Or is it just the same when we've just got more of the same? Thank you, Shirley. Did you want another crack of the whip? Uh, yeah. What's your first name? I'm that? Terry. Terry, go on, Terry. I guess I want to mention two things. One, the distinction between formal and informal racism. We've been talking about how we've seen a decline in any kind of formal legislative racism. And I would say that that happened under liberalism, uh, which was colorblind. Um, but then on the other side, you have you know, the cultural currency. And you could say that maybe in the 80s and 90s, uh, particularly in like Hollywood films and so on, that maybe black people didn't have the cultural currency that white people did. And I think that's an interesting thing to look at. But um, nowadays, uh, if I look around with my own two peepers and my own five senses, as opposed to the rhetoric and the uh, newspeak that I'm being taught in every social institution and in trainings at work and so on, what I see with my own two peepers is um, a dread fear of being racist, people tripping over themselves to try not to be thought of as racist, um, the huge social taboo of racism where people would rather be skinned alive and dipped in acid than be called racist. And this overcompensation, almost fetishization of race and the patronizing beatification of all black people, which is 
utterly racist. <laughs> so that's what I see with my own five senses. But I just want to say two things about liberalism, because I think it's very important. What this is, is it's an attack on liberal uh, political philosophy, and particularly two things. The presumption of innocence, because if we've got this kind of original sin where all white people are automatically innocent, I'm sorry, guilty, before they've done anything concrete, well, then we have to accept the solutions. And secondly, uh, the privacy of the individual. Now we're thinking in these very honor culture-based ways about how guilt transfers from you know ancestors to present-day white people. Uh, you know, if someone else does something, the whole tribe is affected. I mean, this is not liberal. It's an attack. Terry, thank you very much for that. Um, and this is the last person. Uh, did you want to speak? Make it really quick. Go. Okay. Um, yes, the curriculum should be positive reinforcement of teachers. Of teachers is going something along the lines of this. You are all going to be, uh, you're going to all experience prejudice. People are going to be against you because you're short, because you're black, because you're a woman, you're this or that. But um, when you run with weight, athletes, they get stronger. So what you have to do is you have to use this as an opportunity to be stronger. And don't let their judgment uh, affect you. And that's what teach, teachers ought to teach empowerment. Mm. How to deal with racism, not creating more racism. Well, I'm, I'm, we're about to go to Harley, who's the man behind the scenes that basically makes the, the forums work in many respects. And uh, uh, panel, pick up what you want as we wrap up. But... Um, I'm going to give you an impossible question. How, how, what's the best way to move this discussion forward, would you say, as your final remark, if you've got some you can offer as well? Harley. All right, I'm going to try and find a bit of a positive element in the whole white fragility discussion. Um, and you know, I read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, and I've read a lot of stuff about this, and it strikes me that the arguments that hit home the most um, basically boil down to... Uh, the call to pay a bit more attention to what's going on around you. You know, you might be all right, like James here, but the person down the road might not be. Um, you know, we should all perhaps we can all do a bit of that. And that, I think that's something that people respond to, and that bit does hit home, and people you know resonates with people. Um, and the logic of that maybe might be get involved. You know, get more involved in politics, and that would also be a good thing. The trouble is what. What happens is that logic gets sideswiped by um, the idea that, you know, it's not just get involved in politics, but here's our politics, here's the ready-made solution to all this stuff. Don't know, you know, getting involved in politics might mean going out there reading more, understanding more, trying to get to grips with it, discussing with people, but no, it's something sort of handed to you, this sort of one solution to it. That's the bit that bothers me. Hari, thank you for your, your thoughts. And um, the war is almost over tonight. We're going to, um, metaphorically, of course, uh, we're going to have the wise words of Alka, Andre, and we will finish with the parent. So. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> firstly, I don't think schools should be dealing with racism at all. I don't think that's the, the role of schools. I think um, what's happening today is that it's almost like um, schools are being cast as a sort of, in a in a framework of utopianism. It's like we want to grow a better society through, you know, like growing seeds, you know, the, the, the kiddies grow, put the right food in, <laughs> grow up nice, we'll have a nice, perfect society. Um, that is utopianism, and it's antithetical to the liberalism that Terry talked about, um, completely antithetical. Um, 
And I think it, it, it speaks to the avoidance of politics, the reluctance, you know, and, you know, it's not surprising because politics hasn't actually been a great thing to be involved in for, for quite a while. But the thing about politics is that you, it's the arena where adults as meet as both equals and unequals, right? So we have a certain political citizenship and rights as equals, but the social structure of society makes us unequals. So we go into politics and we have partisan interests but if you just if you make those partisan interests your starting point, whether that's me as a woman or a uh, homosexual or black or whatever, and I said, you know, the point is, is that you know, if you're going, you want to make something better in society, and you live with all these other citizens with all their different views, you have to find arguments that is go- that are going to transcend your personal experience and your interpretation of your experience. And honestly, Andre, I know I've disagreed with you on everything, but I do have a lot of sympathy with what you're talking about, the psychological, describing some of the psychological effects. I know that I've experienced it. I see it in my children as well. But we can overcome that, right? A, we can overcome it personally, and it's a good thing to overcome because it makes us more resilient and can inspire us, and that is... If anything, indirectly, that is the kind of, if you like, virtue ethics that should inform schools, not the fake ethics of safetyism and vulnerability, that is what all this feeds into. Um, so we need that those kinds of arguments. We need the tools of, of the Enlightenment thinking. We need those values and ideas and um, ideals in order to construct arguments which will appeal to people who don't share our particular disadvantage but agree to come on the journey to fight for those because they can see it will be better for everyone. So um, it, it, it's the t- and talk about the tyranny of the minority, but that makes it seem like the problem is really black people, and it's not. Every time I hear a politician or effing Apple or some corporate from Silicon Valley talk about, um, you know, doing something for racial disparities. I just cringe. I literally cringe. I want to shrivel up inside and die because I feel used. Because they are using, in fact, they're using my skin colour to basically give themselves a bit of moral kudos, right? So it's completely manipulative. Um, There's nothing Marxist about it. Something, an ideology that basically says to the majority of people, shut up, you can't speak. It's not Marxist, right? It's never exactly. Splitting them into classes. And and just finally, I just want to say, it is, is, you know, you might find it empowering, Andre. I find it totally debilitating. This is encouraged, this is the focus on the the psychological, which can only ever be an individual unit of analysis. It just what it does is encourage a deep insecurity, you know. And I'm quite a robust, confident person, right? And I've fought many battles in different situations. And it's like going back. Well, did they mean that? Were they being racist? And I've had people do microaggressions to me. These are people I love. They're my family. My husband is white, right? And but it doesn't matter, you know. It is not a microaggression if somebody says, "How do you?" If my white brother-in-law asks me, "How would you cook a curry, Alka?" Right? It's just not a microaggression. It's a bit clunky, and I just turn around and say, "Well, you know, I use Madeleine Jeffrey's recipes or something." But, you know, it's not. It's 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 just such a dead end in every way. Alka, thank you, Andre. No, 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 don't. Abuse the chair. No, I'm out of order. Thank you. Oh, no. <laughs> In the pub. In the pub. <laughs>
White privilege needs to be taught in schools. Young children need to be able to know the terminology that they will encounter in the real world. Linking it back to RS, the fact that I was able to learn about different religions from such a young age enabled me to interact with my Muslim friends, my Buddhist friends, in a way that I wouldn't have in this church and learning school I went to from nursery to year three. And I feel like this can also be a case with race. If we want to achieve the utopian world of universalism, which you two gentlemen mentioned in the future, I feel like the first step to doing that is addressing the problems which exist at this present moment in time. And as Andy mentioned, if we want to teach kindness, we do need methods of teaching kindness with the lens of race, which is a problem today. And I feel like the fact that Alka, as you've mentioned, and as you've mentioned also, schools should be focusing more on empowerment or we should, people of color or minorities should just deal with the struggle. Personally, if I were to have children, I wouldn't want them to struggle. I wouldn't want that to be a thing which, which they have to experience, but their white counterparts wouldn't have to experience. I feel like that in and of itself is an example of white privilege. The fact that they won't have to struggle through, they will struggle, but not with the lens of race. But, but don't you feel strong? Oh, no, excuse me. <laughs> we always have the roundup, and we don't allow interruptions ever. Okay. Nice to be nice. I guess it's that expectation that, you know, I as a black person have to be able to muster within myself some strength. And with me coming from a working class family, being the son of two immigrants, I feel as though there's already enough things on my plate which I don't need race to be added on top of that. And I feel like that's something I don't want to see in the future as well for other children of color in a country such as this one, which has so much to offer them. I say this is someone who goes to Cambridge, and in Cambridge, I, within my immediate circle of diverse friends, I don't experience my privilege. But I do know that other people in other, other colleges, other parts of the university do experience that. And I feel like that's something that needs to be emphasized, this necessity to bring awareness to those experiences. And whilst I understand that it is psychological, it's less formal, it's less institutional, I believe as a society we should work together to almost diminish this within us. Why can't we work together to almost end this? Um, I guess I'd like to end on that note, bring awareness. It's not necessarily about blame, it's just about bringing awareness. Mm -hmm. Andre, thank you. And last but absolutely not least, Julie, leave us with your final words of wisdom. <laughs> um, bringing it back to, to the school and what I wish would happen in take, taking these experiences and, uh, and reality that racism uh, exists back into the school and what should teacher do about it or the school as a whole do about it. And I think um, it, whether or not it's the role of the school to to teach white privilege racism, at, at least I think it's the role of the school to create a respectful environment where children experience um, respect, and when they face racism, they recognize it and they and they learn that this isn't right. And for me, there's two ways of doing it: is to give children the opportunity to to really have a good uh, uh, French word cohesion, cohesive, cohesive, uh, cohesive, cohesive, like to cohesive. to bring all those differences and, and have a kind of project or something that they 
and they achieve all together and through something that's difficult even. And they, they do it together so they'll, they'll, they'll forget about the, the race and Fraternity. the Yeah, some solidarity. Some kind of solidarity, but to be so to be given something challenging to 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 do together within the class, and the balance of that is that they they would they would also learn about um, uh, what it what it feels to face um, uh, you know racism or or exclusion by you know, ways of sharing it and understanding. And I'm giving. Um, one last example, but uh, in that school where my son goes and being told about white privilege, I don't know what examples of privilege again. Oh, sorry, of racism against black kids happen. There may be some certainly, but my son, who's white, had been told in no uncertain terms that he cannot play basketball because that is not a white boy's sport. So that's being dealt with by the school. But in another, in another, you know, uh, deep learning day that took place. Um, that everybody thought was going to be about LGBT and half of the class didn't turn up in class. Actually, that deep learning day was about um, uh, grief and sharing uh, strong experiences. And so my son went and he said it was horrible because half the class wasn't there and the topic was amazing and it was so good to actually connect and it probably solved a lot of issues around prejudice because it was taught in a really nice way. But the school had some, in a very clumsy way, covered the whole deep learning day with an LGBT angle. And because of the, the type of um, population in that school, a lot of people didn't come that day. So, kind of an unfortunate example, but for me, that was, I was so disappointed. I was like, that's what you need, you know, give some good people to, to make children open up their hearts and it sounds a bit, you know, uh, unicorn type of thing. So on, the, on, one, on one hand, work on their vulnerability, but on the other hand, give them a lot of you know, challenging, strong things to achieve together so they overcome all these, you know, differences. Do you need... Can I say, first of all, to you, who doesn't usually speak, maybe the first political platform you've ever spoke on in your life as a part, thank you, mercy be to Alka, you old veteran, political animal, you, thank you very much for your words of wisdom. And Andre, my ex-student, you Cambridge intellectual, you, thank you very much. And can I just say, I know that you fought a war just to get here with the transport system on this cold winter's night, so thanks a million for coming here. May I say I've been up this morning from 5am. May I say that I'll be up tomorrow at 5am for school. And that's not going to stop me from going to the pub with our speakers <laughs> and everybody else. And may I say we want all to be, you know, the thread is Marxism. Let us all be Bolsheviks tonight. <laughs> and let's go to the pub 50 metres down the street, have a beer and continue the conversation. And happy and Merry Christmas. And if anybody's really quick, there might be some alcohol left. Just swing it down here. <laughs> Give them a round of applause.